right, let's let's go ahead and get started. We have a a pivotal uh, suspense-filled chapter here, right in the middle of Esther, where if we, in a sense, suspend our our knowledge of how the story ends. We, we, we know the story of Esther. We, we know the trajectory of where it's going. But, but let's kind of suspend that for a moment and, and allow ourselves to sort of enter into the minds of the characters as these things are unfolding <clears throat> and, and allow ourselves to sort of feel that tension that's building and building. And uh, that will do a couple of things. Number one, we will appreciate the artistry of the narrator and how he's woven this story together under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. It's, it's, a, it's a brilliant piece of literature, a brilliant piece of storytelling to build that tension and in that tension communicate something significant about the, the character and the ways of God. But also, when if we will <clears throat> sort of allow us to suspend our, 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 our understanding of the end, it will help us to recognize the sort of the hidden things that God is doing. And we, as we enter into, as it were, the, the experience of, of Esther and Mordecai and feeling that tension, we will better appreciate how God delivers them and rescues them. Because we can, we have a tendency sometimes, because we know how the story ends, we sort of, we can kind of trivialize how awesome God's deliverance is and the various ways in which he uses that. So for example, we, we will see at the end of chapter 5 this scene where, where Haman you know, plots to make this gallows, you know, 50 cubits high, 75 cubits high. And we, we may gloss over that because we know it's how it's used later on. But to be told that now and to let that suspense kind of build, huh, that's, that's frightening to think that he's going to hang Mordecai on these gallows and, and see let ourselves be amazed at how God providentially rules in such a way that Mordecai and all the Jews are actually spared and exalted instead of destroyed. So let's pray and seek the Lord's help as we open together chapter 5 of the book of Esther. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your great mercy to us, for the great deliverance that you have brought to us by the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in whom we we now stand, and in whom we can rest in your presence. We thank you that we are assured of pardon. We are assured of access into the very throne room of Christ to come before the Ancient of Days with all of our fears, our challenges, our own sin, and know that we will find mercy in Christ Jesus. We thank you in his name, and we ask that you help us by your spirit to understand what we read and and not only to understand it so that our, our heads will be full, but that our hearts will be enlarged and, enlarged and our love for you would increase. Uh, we thank you for your word in Christ's name. Amen. So we have this turning point, in, not only in the narrative, but it's a sharp turning point in, the, in Esther as, as a person, as a woman. It's a sharp turning point for her. And what we find is at the end of chapter 4, Mordecai had told Esther, you've got to take a stand. You've got to go to the king and, and make a petition on behalf of your people. And Esther is 
forced by forced into do I do what's right? Forced into that dilemma. Do I do what's right? Do I do I stand up, reveal myself as a Jewess, put my own life on the line, quite literally, or do I continue to try to blend in as a Persian? Uh, blend into the to the to the life of the kingdom and and blend into the world and hope that I can just sort of fly under the radar. And Mordecai, of course, tells her, you're not going to fly under the radar. Uh, the Lord will deliver from someone else from somewhere else, but you will not be. You will you will you will perish with everyone else. So there's a question that, that sort of emerges from the text as we think about in advance, how do we apply this? How do we how do we think about this this passage of Esther? and its relevance for us. And I'll pose this question. Have you ever been forced to step forward in faith with a major decision, knowing full well that the risks were substantial, and you had no assurance that it would turn out well? Have you ever been forced to, to stand on your convictions in that way? And I'm, not, and I'm not talking about taking some bold move like ordering a new menu item at your favorite restaurant hoping it works out. I'm talking about something where it's costly, where, where you will likely pay a price for making such a stand. And you will be convinced or convicted by people around you that you're crazy. I mean, to do that, to stick your neck out like that or to take that stand, isn't that, that's, that's foolish. And I was thinking about this this week, wrestling through the text, and I'll read it here in a moment, but wrestling through the text... I was thinking about this and, and thinking about the, the life of our own family and several decisions that we've had to kind of take a deep breath and say, this is the right thing to do. We're going to do this, even though many times people around us thought, this is, this is crazy, or we're not sure about this. Uh, when we, 20, oh, I guess 22 years ago, I guess, stepped out at homeschool and, and said, we're we're going to draw a line in the sand. We, we've looked at what's going on in, even back then, in a small conservative area, what was going on in the government schools, and said, we, we can't have our, our daughter subjected to this. We can't have our family subjected to this. And taking the stand that we're going to, we're going to take responsibility as parents, even though we didn't really know what we were doing yet, and we're going to take responsibility for that. There were some people who were supportive around us. There were others who said, this is kind of crazy. They all are crazy. Similar thing when we felt like the God, God was calling us to adopt and putting a, a number of things on the table at risk for that, uh, financially and otherwise, to say, this is what we're going to do. We believe this is the right thing to do. Um, then again, when within the first year after planting GFBC Conroe and, and the demands of, of pastoral ministry and the demands of my corporate job were, were increasingly clashing and I just couldn't keep up and... We, we stepped out and said, well, I'll leave my corporate job with no plan, no, no, no income, not, not knowing what we were going to do, and, and but believing this was right. This is what God had called us to do. And, and, and each and every time, God has been so faithful and seeing how he has worked in ways that were unexpected, ways of, of, of providing, ways of comforting, ways of strengthening us, ways of confirming himself in us, that we didn't, we didn't anticipate. So think about that in, in your own life. Think about those, those decisions, and there have been other decisions that we've, we've made that didn't work out as well. 
or other times when we should have stepped out and didn't. And Esther helps us to think about all of those circumstances when we, uh, thanks be to God, did the right thing and stood on, on principle, and other times when we didn't. And we regret that, we grieve that. So I'm going to back up, read the last paragraph of chapter 4 and then chapter 5. It's a fairly short chapter. Hear, hear the word of God. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to half my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart, But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced above the officials and the servants of the king. Then... Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king, yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king you have Mordecai hanged upon it, or tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Dun, dun, dun. 
you have this sense of impending doom. And yet, here the narrator, again, showing us these different scenes. If this were a, a movie, or a, let's say it's a theater production, the curtain would come down and it would open up into a new scene. So we have this scene with Esther and the king, and then it flashes over. We've, we watch Haman go through the gates and just kind of snarl to himself as he sees Mordecai sitting there, his arch enemy. And then going home, probably with the cocktail still on his breath, and he goes home and he boasts in front of his wife and his friends about all that he has accomplished and all, that the, all the ways that the king has promoted him. But you have to wonder what it must have been like for Esther. I mean, here she is. She's been fasting from food and drink for three days and three nights. Have you ever done that? Even just for one day. Um, I've never fasted from both food and drink. But even just to fast for 24 hours or so from food, you, you're not at your sharpest, are you, mentally? It can have an effect. Some are more affected than others. Some get grumpy and agitated. Some just get very weak. And imagine what it was like for Esther. She's been fasting for three days, both food and drink. She's preparing to approach the king uninvited, and we know that under Persian law, an uninvited guest was subject to the death penalty. It was no small thing. In fact, ancient carvings have been recovered at the, the ancient palace of Persepolis. I think I'm pronouncing that probably incorrectly. Persepolis, that date to this time of King Ahasuerus. And on these carvings... Here's the king sitting on his throne. You know what's behind him? A big soldier with an executioner's axe in the presence of the king at all times. So we know this is not just, not only from the the scriptures here is Esther saying that that her life could be in jeopardy. No, it's a historical fact that the Persians, it was Persian custom. You didn't enter into the king's presence. He had seven chief advisors that had access to him. Think about Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer who had access to King Cyrus. But even Nehemiah, who had permission to be in front of the king, was still nervous to bring a request to the king, to be have his countenance downward in front of the king. Well, now Esther's going with a fasting countenance, probably physically weak, scared to death, been up, no, no doubt, all night long, fretting, this meeting, wondering if this will be her last moments. And she, she dresses in her royal robes and stands just outside the king's door. But the fifth chapter of Esther could prove to be an encouragement for us uh, to stand boldly upon our convictions, even when we feel very weak and vulnerable. The chapter may provide an admonishment to us to stand firmly in the face of unknown dangers, in the face of unknown challenges, and and believing that even if God doesn't give us an assurance in advance, and often this is the case, he doesn't assure us in advance that everything's going to be well, that everything's going to turn out right. He says, look at me, trust my word, and go act. And leave those consequences to me. Trust my goodness, trust my character. I think about Daniel's three friends who, who appeared before the king, and they refused to bow down. And they said, our Lord is able to deliver us, O king. And even if he does not, we will not bow down. So Esther's faced with this. Now, as we go through the lesson, I'm going to ask questions. 
And I know it's sort of my style of, of teaching and preaching to ask questions, even in sermons. I do it rhetorically. And sometimes I see you guys nodding along or shaking your head. You're, you're, you're kind of answering as, as we go. But I'm going to ask some questions this morning that are not rhetorical. I'm asking you to actually think about it and, and, and answer. Because this, this is, we want to wrestle through the text together. So, for example, I asked earlier, have you ever been forced to step forward in faith or step forward in a, in a conviction that something was right or wrong, not knowing how it would turn out? You think and you want to, sh- want to share an example of a way that you've had to, you know, inhale or exhale deeply and say, okay, here we go, Lord. Erica. <laughs> Amen, amen. Uh, to, to to leave to leave what you, your family to leave your home and and to enter into a marriage with a with a person who's you know twice removed from from your 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 own country you know a Canadian living in Texas that's two different countries. <clears throat> so let's look at this. The, the 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 text moves in sort of three different scenes or three different movements. One, we see this hope hanging in the balance. As we pick up the end of chapter 4 and then going into chapter 5, look what happens. On the third day, this is the third day of the fasting and the praying. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. You just can imagine the, the trembling fingers as she is is getting dressed and and no doubt one of her servants would have been helping her get dressed and asking questions, what, what's, what's the big occasion? What are you getting dressed up for? Well, I can't talk about that. I'm going to see the king. And even the servants would have known. He hasn't summoned you. This, this is risky. Are you sure, Esther? And maybe one of even her, her, her handmaiden would be saying, is this really what you want to do? Is this, is this, are you sure about this? But notice something in verse 1. The narrator is emphasizing something. Six different times he uses the words royalty or king. And in the Hebrew, it's the same root word. And six different times in one verse alone, he appeals to royalty. Why do you think he's doing that? Why do you think the narrator repeats that so many times? What's the point of emphasizing the royalty here? What do you think? Matthew? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's, there's definitely that. Um, I think it's also... The narrator is helping us to set the stage here. This is not merely a discussion between a husband and a wife. This is setting the stage for the implications of this conversation have kingdom implications, kingdom-wide implications. Esther is presented as putting on her royal robes, but then we're the, the other five times that this root word with respect to king or royalty is used is pointing us to the king and all of his power, all of his wealth. I mean, he has, at least as the chapter starts, 
he's holding all the cards. I mean, if you're a, a critical theorist, if you're, if you're one of those who, who is studying and subscribing to that erroneous doctrine of critical theory, I mean, this is an exciting kind of thing to think about. This is, ex- this is, this is the kind of stuff that gets you jazzed up and, 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 and drives your research. Here's this king with all his privilege and authority, and here's this woman, marginalized, powerless, standing before him. And notice the contrast here. This is not the last time that we saw Esther go before the king was under quite different circumstances, wasn't it? You know, before, she was eating special foods for a a long period of time, getting ready. I mean, because we think in our culture, we tend to be more driven towards um, being really thin in order to be attractive. That wasn't the case in the ancient Near East. So when they were fed uh, these gourmet foods, it was to plump them up a little bit. The, to, to make them more attractive in appearance. Remember Daniel, the, he appealed to the eunuch, can we eat just have water and vegetables rather than the king's delicacies? And the eunuch was concerned that they would look sort of emaciated if they did that, they, that they would not look as plump as the healthy young men. So here she's eating special foods. In the first time, now she's fasting. So there's this contrast. There's another contrast before and now she's dressing in royal robes. Before she was dressed in probably something different to go before the king. Before, her goal was seduction, to make herself physically attractive and appealing to the king. And now she's making a very serious appeal by way of her royal office. So there's, a, there's an inherent contrast here. Now, David Strain makes this remark in his commentary on this. He said, interestingly, that the Jewish Midrash, which is sort of a Jewish commentary on the book of Esther, or the book of the Old Old Testament, but in the section on Esther, on this particular passage, the Jews highlight that there were three days of fasting under the threat of death and that the way of God answered. It declared, this this is the Jewish commentary on this passage, Israel is never left in dire distress more than three days. And then it pointed to Hosea chapter 6 and verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. That is what is happening in Esther 5. Three days under the shadow of death. And on the third, not death, but life. Which, of course, is immensely suggestive of another. Upon whose shoulders the duty of acting on behalf of the people of God fell. The heroism of Esther in the throne room of Ahasuerus is, as dramatic as it was, pales in comparison to the heroic deliverance from death won for the whole people of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was delivered over on account of our transgressions and on the third day was raised for our justification. So here's this period of of fasting, in a sense, now she's putting on her royal robes, emerging after the third day, and And this is, I think, confirming in many ways what the Apostle Paul talks about with respect to Israel, that even to this day there is a veil over them where they cannot understand Moses rightly. They cannot understand even the Old Testament scriptures rightly. Here, it's almost like they're they're halfway there. They see the imagery in Esther chapter 5 that God always delivers his people, 
never lets them perish beyond those, that third day. But on the third day, he's actually going to raise us up again. But they miss that it's pointing them to their Messiah. So we have in this verse, the end of chapter 4, the first verse of chapter 5, this tension builds, this hope hanging in the balance here. You have this compare and contrast between this present meeting with Esther and the king and her previous meeting with him. But then we see in verses 2 through 8 that, that the favor of the king towards Esther is confirmed. It's, it's reaffirmed. We see in verse 2, and when so just kind of imagine the scene. The king is on his royal throne. He's in the throne room. There's a courtyard outside of that. The door is open, and Esther goes and stands in such a way that as the king looks out through the doorway, he sees her. Now, again, she's uninvited. She knows, and now we know, what the stakes are. They're very high. Her life is hanging in the balance. And we, but we kind of get to join Esther here in a huge exhale because the king sees Esther, and we're told in verse 2, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And she goes in and touches the tip of it, acknowledging that she has been summoned into his presence. Now, have you ever fretted over a decision? Kind of been up all night worrying about it. Maybe days or weeks have gone by as you you wrestled with this and knew kind of that moment of, of consequence is coming. And you finally get there. And it's like the Lord just immediately confirms that you made the right decision. Have you ever had that? <laughs> it's an ongoing theme, huh? else who thought of a situation where you fretted over something, worried about it, and then as soon as you stood in that moment, Lord, you were right. I remember specifically we had we it was kind of a curveball at least from our perspective we were we were told we had to meet with the the regional directory of the Russian Ministry of Education that's the one who gives oversight of the adoption process then we had to meet with this man we didn't know we were going to have to meet with him at all and we were, then we also didn't know that the whole purpose of this meeting was to evaluate us and that we were not allowed to bring our translator we had to use the government provided translator and that his was going to be giving testimony the following day in court uh, as to our suitability. And we had no idea. I mean, he was a very stern-looking man, and he just sat, you know, without emotion watching, and he asked us some questions, and we, we got grilled a little bit, and we didn't know how this was going to turn out. We continued to pray about it, and 
we got into court and through the, the court translator, we, we heard him stand up and say some of the most kind things anyone has ever said about our family. We're like, where, where did this come from? And it was just the Lord confirmed all of that in, in an instant that he was with us, even in a pagan land, even in a, in, a, in a foreign process where we didn't understand what was going on. And, and all we had to, to do was to tell the truth as he's asking us questions, and they're asking questions about discipline and things like that. And we had to be, you know, are we going to be truthful or are we going to fudge here? And the Lord was, went before us in all those things. And, you know, we've seen several times in the book of Judges where the author clearly wants us to join in in the mocking of Israel's enemies. Well, we see something like that again here in Esther chapter 5. There's actually some humor here if, if we'll uh, let ourselves be willing to laugh at the scriptures, laugh along with the scriptures. Um, so again, here's this, we saw in, in verse 1, six times the narrator emphasizes the, the royal power of Ahasuerus. Even the, the, the sword of wrath or the axe of wrath was at his disposal. He, he, could, he could kill Esther just with a word. And this is contrasted against Esther's vulnerability, her, her weakness. But here, the tables get turned. And here's this mighty king. You know, almost have to use your sanctified imagination and, and imagine his throne room. You know, here's the big mighty soldier who was probably the best of the best, the one with the broadest shoulders, the big fat neck, and, and the, the battle axe and all the trappings of power and royalty, and yet Esther comes in and plays him like a fiddle. One commentator kind of compared Esther to a tournament fisherman, a trophy fisherman. She's got him on the hook, and we watch this. She doesn't reel him in right away. We're going to watch her like like a cat with a mouse playing with him. I mean, in a sense, drawing him in bit by bit to get her get the commitment that she's desiring. And, and it's a it's a complete reversal. It's it's a sort of a, a living example of our Lord's expression that the last will be first and the first will be last. Those who seek to save their lives will lose it. But those who are willing to lose their lives for my sake will actually win their own lives, will gain that. She plays coy. She does not immediately unveil her request to the king, but she knows him well. And she makes her appeal to him on on basically two different bases. Number one is pride. She knows I can appeal to his pride. King, I have provided, I've prepared a special banquet for you, just for you. Oh, okay. But she also appeals, she knows he he has a, a love for a good party. He can't pass up a good party. We've already seen that in him. So she says, appeals to his pride, Appeals to his sense of, of entertainment. And now, Hadassah, the Hebrew name for Esther, this lowly peasant Jewish girl, is really the one running the kingdom. And so we're, we're invited, in a sense, to mock. Here's this big royal display of power and authority, and this lowly peasant girl is actually pulling all the strings. She's running the show, and he doesn't even know it. He thinks he's giving the orders. Her, by her shrewdness, both the king and Haman, which is his top henchman, are in the palm of her hand. And such is the power of 
providence who rules through all circumstances and especially through his gracious dealing with his people. Now look over at verse 7 and 8. This is, this is masterful. So this is at the first banquet. And when, when, when the king first sees her and he extends the royal scepter, she comes in and he says, whatever request you want. And this is kind of typical Persian, uh, ancient Near East hyperbole. I'll give you anything you want up to half of my kingdom. And she says, well, could you come to my party? I'm, I'm having a, a banquet for you, and could you bring Haman along? That's, that's really what I would like. Sure, they come. He immediately sends an order to bring Haman quickly. Then they're eating and drinking, and in verse 7, he says, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Verse 7, then Esther answered, my wish... And my request is, what, she doesn't answer it, does she? Here's my, here's my request. Will you come to another party tomorrow? But this is brilliant. Now, what she's doing here, she's setting, the, she's setting the hook. Because if he now agrees to come, he is, in front of a witness, agreeing to fulfill her request. By committing to come, she's tying those things together, you see? By coming to the party, you're also agreeing to fulfill whatever I say. And you're doing it now in front of a witness. This isn't just a private conversation. This is, you know, my, my background is sales and marketing and, and sales 101. I remember graduating from college, the very first job I had, you know, the first six weeks or so we're in training. And I think the first day of training, sales 101, is you're looking at buying signals. The customer's getting prepared to buy something, they'll ask questions like, does this come in red? Oh, well, that's time to go for the clothes because they're already, they're already thinking about themselves buying this. Does, this. does this car come with other seats? Oh, yes, it does. Would you like to pick that up tomorrow? When, or how, how soon could uh, we close on this house if we made an offer? Well, that's a buying signal. Do, do you have this bedroom suit or this dining table set? Do you have that in stock? Yes, let's close the deal. Esther's watching him and seeing sort of his buying signals, if you were, and she sets the hook. You see what she does. She's brilliant. She she essentially obligates the king in front of at least this one witness to fulfill her request. So for those keeping score at home, the power has now officially shifted. Esther holds the keys now, not the king. And not Haman, and yet they both think they do. So again, here's the, the place where we can join in in mocking the enemies of God. The enemies of God think that they're in charge. They generally believe they have power and control. They generally believe that they are the ones calling the shots. And, and it's not that the Bible is calling us to be smug or to be proud, uh, the opposite of that, but to be confident in the God who is able to deliver to the uttermost. Dr. Gregory in his commentator, his commentary says this, he says, this provides a subtle indication within the narrative that power is shifting. Up until this point, Esther has always come into the king's space at his bidding. Initially, she won his favor by entering his bedroom. 
Then she won his favor and entered the throne room to make her request. But now the situation is reversed. Esther is the hostess, and the king and Haman will enter her space at her bidding. Ever so subtly, the power is shifting to Esther. From now on, she will be the one steering the events. Perhaps the king's insinuation that half the kingdom rightly belongs to her is less hyperbolic than even he realizes at this point. Now, the other thing interesting the narrator does, prior to this, Esther is referred to as Queen Esther only once. But after this, from this point on, she's referred to as Queen Esther 16 times in the rest of the narrative. So there's a shift here. Now she is seen not only as this sort of veiled Jew living under the kingdom, but now she's seen genuinely as the queen, as the one in charge. But we don't attribute this reversal of fortune just to Esther's shrewdness. We, we know better than that. It's not just that Esther really outfoxed the king, and that's, that's how this all panned out. The narrative simply confirms what the Bible always and consistently teaches. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21.1. So even as we pray for our public officials week by week by week, do we pray in faith? Do we pray believing that God genuinely can turn the heart of a king? that for Esther to, to dress that morning after three days of prayer and fasting, not knowing is she going to live, is she going to die, and to, and to come into the king's, into his visible presence, into his sight line, and for her to gain favor in his sight is only the work of God. It is only his favor. I think there's a lesson for us here if we have ears to hear that the providence of God is ruling and governing even among our enemies in ways that we, we won't perceive. We won't see it in advance, and God doesn't owe it to us. He didn't owe it to Esther to show her in a dream or a vision what was going to happen in advance. Now, we, we've seen this in Judges, like, for example, with Gideon. The Lord said, if you're afraid, you and your servant can go down into the Midianite camp at night, and I will confirm this to you. And, of course, he was able to overhear a conversation. The Lord confirmed ahead of time that the victory was going to be his, that God would deliver them in, into the Midianites into his hands. But God doesn't always do that, does he? There are many times we just have to simply stand by faith and say, whether I live or whether I die, in the words of Esther, if I perish, I perish. Now, Esther steps out in bold faith, risking all that she has and all that she is, willing for the very first time to be identified publicly among her covenant people. She's going to have to expose herself now as a Jew. I mean, she's been, she's been lying to her husband for five years about her true identity. And she's going to have to own up to that. And from this point on, again, she's called queen 16 times. David Strain, once again, he says, the golden scepter was held out to Esther as she acted on behalf of her people. Esther was spared, but Jesus was not spared. He died for his people at the cross. The good news is that the sentence has been fulfilled, the penalty satisfied for anyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have not done so, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And for those who do trust in Christ, as Hebrews 4.16 says, we need never fear coming before the one seated on heaven's throne in condemnation again. 
No, now we can go to the throne of grace boldly with confidence to receive mercy and find help, or find grace to help in time of need. So here, Esther reminds us that, that we no longer, if we are in Christ, we no longer need to fret and worry about coming into the presence of God. Either, either coming together corporately before him, coming under, under his word, coming to, to eat and drink of the body and blood of our Lord in the supper, or coming to him privately in prayer and through his word. We no longer fear that because of the work of Jesus Christ. We can now come boldly into the very presence of the Ancient of Days. We never fear any longer. We don't need to fear any longer about coming into God's throne room and facing condemnation. Do we really even comprehend that? That because of the work of Christ, we can come before the holy, holy, holy one. I mean, think about um, Isaiah's vision, recorded in Isaiah chapter 6, where he comes before the throne of God, and he sees all the, the, he sees the glory of the heavenly majesty, and, and his, his, his immediate response was to fall down and to say, depart from me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among people of unclean lips. And, of course, we see the angel in the vision. The angel takes a coal from the, from the altar and touches Isaiah's lips with that, purifying him. And in Christ, we, we stand in him. We stand purified before him, and no longer do we come with a threat of condemnation. Regardless of, of, of what we have done, regardless of how we have stumbled, of how we have fallen, how we have betrayed our Lord, intentionally or unintentionally, we can come without a fear of condemnation to come humbly and boldly before the Lord's presence. But then the scene shifts again. So here we have this, this wonderful reminder about what God is doing behind the scenes, and then the, the, the camera lens shifts, as it were, and follows Haman home. Haman goes out from the first banquet, and he's just got a spring in his step. He's joyful, glad of heart. No doubt his gladness of heart enhanced by the beverages from the banquet. He is, um, he sees Mordecai in the king's gate. And not only does he see Mordecai, but in Haman's mind, Mordecai doesn't stand and give him the respect that he deserves. And he just sees at this. He's angry. The text tells us somehow Haman restrains himself, and he went home. Now, even that is God's providential rule, even over, over a pagan, because had Haman struck Mordecai or something of that sort, made a scene there, the pot would have unraveled. So even, even the Spirit of God is at work among the pagans, restraining them, restraining their wickedness. And he goes home to his friends and to his wife, Zeresh. And then he begins this, this, you know, just rather than wallowing in his misery, he goes home and, and applies sort of an opposite sort of medicine. I'm going to gather my, my, my friends and my wife around me, and I'm just going to boast. I'm going to brag about all my exploits. I'm just going to indulge my pride. Now, you young men, I want you to take notice of something here that's very important. We're introduced to Haman's wife, a woman, a charming, delightful woman named Zeresh. 
I'm being sarcastic. But young men, take note of this. Take notice of, of Zeresh. This is precisely the kind of woman you don't want in your life. This is precisely the kind of wife you do not want. This is the kind of wife that is of no profit to you. One who will indulge your pride and not call you out on your stuff. That's not the kind of woman you want. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that Zeresh is the kind of wife to be avoided? And why are Haman's friends the kinds of friends that you don't want to have around you? Young men, think about that. Give me an answer. Why are these kinds of friends and this kind of wife not the kind that you want? Yeah, yeah. They're just telling him what he wanted to hear. But what else? Let's, let's pray, pray. They encourage his sin. Yeah. What, what would a godly wife have done in this in this situation? Yeah. 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 Matthew? Right. Yeah. At, 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 the, at the very least, a godly wife would have put her hand on her husband's knee and said, hey, baby, let's, let's call it a night. Let's, let's get some sleep. She would not have indulged that. Uh, would not have sort of fueled this fire. Verse 14 says, Then his wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, Let a gallows, 50 cubits high, be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. I mean, this is just a, we have, we have a full measure of 50 cubits of pride represented here. 75 feet worth of pride. It's not enough just to build a gallows. I mean, how high does it have to be to hang a man? A little over six feet should do it. 75 feet. This is, this is nothing but a monument to his pride. And his wife and his friends encourage this and say, yeah, this is good. This is good. We, this is what you ought to do. And, of course, Haman's lapping it up. Oh, yeah, that's great. I will have that made. Haman comes home full of pride, probably strong drink also, and, and to make himself feel better, he starts bragging about all this stuff. And he says that, all these accomplishments, all of his promotions, all the medals that he's won, all the things, he, he points to the trophy case above the mantle, and he says, look at all this stuff. He says, but all that's worthless to me because Mordecai is still there. Once again, our narrator is showing us this scene so that we can gain an increasing sense of God's mighty hand working behind the scenes. And again, if we kind of pretended we don't know how the story ends yet, we're left here the once again, in chapter 5, the tension's building. I mean, it seems to be that things are going well. Esther's got an ear with the king, but, I mean, here's Haman, the second in command. He's, he's already the one who's set this plot in motion to kill all the Jews, and now he's, he's going to kill Mordecai. I mean, he's, he's, he's going to ruin this before it even gets off the ground. And if we didn't know how the story ends, we would be left with, you know, if it's one of those... Uh, weekly kind of serial dramas where you're now the credits roll and we got to wait till next week to see how this thing turns out 
What's going to happen next? But it helps us to consider uh, the mighty hand of God working behind the scenes, working to give grace to the humble. I mean, he's, he, he has humbled Esther, and, and he's given grace to her, and, and also we see him opposing the proud. We don't see it in the instant that we learn about the gallows being made, but we, we, we know how that gallows is going, ultimately going to be used. So as we look back, as the story develops, we'll see, ah, this was a pivotal moment. And God actually used this man's pride for his own snare. And as we consider today, our own enemies, the enemies of God, and some of them are pretty vocal. Some are, are, are have the same sort of thing. I've got all this in the world, but I just can't rest because these Christians are still around. I just can't be satisfied because there are people who won't affirm and rejoice in my perverse agenda. And we are tempted to think, well, they're winning. And, and the way Esther chapter 5 ends is, is an encouragement to us to say, well, not so fast. The Lord may be using that very pride in all their parades and everything to set the trap for them. The Lord is on his throne. He's ruling and governing from the least to the greatest. We see him turn the heart of uh, King Ahasuerus towards Esther. We see him even restrained the hand of Haman from attacking Mordecai on the spot. And we see him working behind the scenes to accomplish all of his purposes. So we think about um, Esther and, and, and our lives. I'll close with, with this. I'm just going to put this before you. In our, our Confession of Faith in Chapter 5, which is the chapter on providence. In paragraph 2, paragraph 1, we have a, de a definition of providence, that, that God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least. In paragraph 2, we, we confess this is true from the scriptures. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, so that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without his providence, yet by the same providence he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Now, there's a lot there that we don't have time to unpack, but we, we, God is the first cause of all things. It is by God's eternal decree that every single detail of this Esther narrative is falling out exactly as God had decreed it, and he's using second causes. Now, what, what's an example of a second cause? God is the first cause of all things. What's an example of a second cause, Matthew? Everything we do. Yeah. Haman's pride... And Zeresh's suggestion that he build a gallows, that's a second cause. And those second causes, God causes to fall out according to the nature of them. Even a man's sinful nature, God is using, this can blow our minds, but God is using to accomplish his purposes. He's using Haman's pride. He used the wicked thoughts and intentions of Joseph's brothers. What you intended for evil. 
God meant for good to bring about this day a deliverance of this great many. And those, those causes, those second causes, are, are sometimes are necessary, meaning you jump off this roof, the necessity of gravity is going to take you to the ground. I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's an easy one. Sometimes freely. This was, this was Haman's free choice. This was, this was the king's free choice to accept the invitation of Esther. And God is using his nature, his pride, his love for a party to, to cause him to accept that invitation and come. Or contingently. One thing happens, and that causes another thing to happen, which causes another thing to happen. And God uses all of those to accomplish his purposes. Well, the next paragraph in, our, in, in chapter 5 says, God, in his ordinary providence, makes use of means. Well, he could have taken out Haman, just like he did with Herod, just worms ate him. I mean, he, he, God, or just, he just drops dead, Ananias and Sapphira. God just, they're dead. Other times God uses a particular means to accomplish his purposes. But he is free to work without, above, and against those means at his good pleasure. And the footnotes in our, our confession, we'll wrap up here, run a little bit long. But the footnotes in our confession are helpful with this idea of, of working without the means. It quotes or references Hosea chapter 1, and verse 7, in which God said that he will smite the enemies of Israel by his own hand. Now, we know there are many times in, in the history of Israel where God delivered them. For example, the Midianites, he caused them to strike one another. He used the means of, of man turning against man to destroy them. There were other times when God just himself destroyed them. They also, the footnote for above the ordinary means, he references chapter 4 of Romans where Paul is talking about Abraham and Sarah having a child at 90 and 100 years old. God is free to work above the ordinary means. Now, this was not an immaculate conception. This was an ordinary conception, but it was above the ordinary course of things because even Sarah and Abraham laughed at the prospect of her being 90 and pregnant because ordinarily that doesn't happen. And so it wasn't um, without the means. God didn't just provide a son. They didn't wake up one morning and there's Isaac. He used the ordinary means of, of a pregnancy, but it was above those ordinary means. And then lastly, against those ordinary means, the references in Daniel chapter 3, where the three young men are thrown into a fiery furnace, and they didn't burn up. Their clothes didn't burn. They didn't even smell of smoke. That's against, ordinarily, when someone's in a, in a furnace that's heated seven times, they're incinerated, and they did not. So God is free to work without those ordinary means, above those ordinary means, or even against those ordinary means at his good pleasure. But ordinarily, he does use various means. And we see that in the book of Esther. We get to sometimes see behind the veil and see all these, these gears turning in the machine and see if this wheel turns this way, and this wheel turns this way, and this wheel turns this way, now we see what comes out the other end. But looking at any one of those gears in isolation, we wouldn't be able to see that. So Esther chapter 5 could be a great encouragement for us one, to stand, stand boldly, believing that God is, is, is actually ruling and governing all things. But it's also an exhortation to us that when we have failed to do that, uh, we flee to the one who has obeyed perfectly on our behalf, who trusted perfectly, fully, sufficiently uh, for our deliverance. Let's, let's pray and take a, a short break. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, 
your mercy towards us. Thank you for these, these true stories of your, your work delivering your people. I pray that you will help us to be emboldened by these things and, and cause our faith in your power and your goodness to be increased that we might lean more and more upon you and and not trust our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.